Under these laws, me simply saying that I'm an atheist is considered an insult or criticism of God. The simple act of identifying oneself as an atheist can break blasphemy laws. Hello and welcome to the USERF Spotlight podcast, a weekly podcast series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each week, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Now here is the host of our show, USERF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, to lead today's discussion. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. Today we're going to talk about non-religious communities, which includes those who identify as atheist, agnostic, free thinker, humanist, secularist, and individuals who do not identify with any particular religion. According to the Pew Research Center, as of 2010, Approximately 1.1 billion people globally identified as religiously unaffiliated or non-believer. And in June 2021, USERF produced a fact sheet on non-believers in Africa, which highlighted the growing number of Africans who do not believe in or identify with any religion. This is also a trend that we're seeing across continents, especially among younger generations. Article 18 of both the United Nations Human Rights Charter and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights protects not only the right to believe in and practice a religion and to change a religion, but also the right to hold non-theistic beliefs. Under these international instruments, non-believers have the right to hold, follow, advocate, and promote their worldview to the same extent as theists. Despite these protections, many members of non-religious communities face government repression, social intolerance, restrictions on freedom of thought, belief, and expression, and pervasive discrimination because of their lack of religion or absence of belief in a God. Today, we have with us Rachel Deitch, Director of Policy and Social Justice with the American Humanist Association to further discuss religious freedom conditions of non-religious communities around the world. Rachel, Rachel, welcome to USERF Spotlight. Thanks, Dwight. I'm excited to be here. Well, to start with, uh, it'd be great if you could share with our audience more background on on what it means to be a non-believer to the extent known. What are the global demographics for non-believer communities and and what makes it particularly hard to track these figures? Yeah, so I think when we're talking about non-believers, it's important to ground ourselves first in what a believer is. And if a believer is someone who finds meaning in their life or seeks guidance from belief in a God, a non-believer simply is someone who finds that meaning elsewhere, not from a God. And the big questions that we often think about when we're defining religious communities, how did we get here? How should I act while I'm here? What's the meaning of life? Non-believers just simply don't rely on a God or religion to answer these questions. Instead, we find those answers in human reason and compassion. And you stole my statistic, Dwight. I was going to talk about the Pew Research Center, that there are, in fact, more than one billion non-religious people in the world today, making up about 16 percent of the global population. But those numbers are really hard to estimate on that scale. 
Non-believers are among the most persecuted groups in the world, and identifying as a non-believer, like you also said, can put you at risk for discrimination or violence. And scientists believe that when you ask people to positively identify themselves, let's say as an atheist or a non-theist, the most stigmatized word for a non-believer, that number drops by half. And so we think there's about, you know, 500 million affirmatively identified atheists in the world. But alternatively, in areas where being a non-believer is accepted in society, that number of atheists is much higher. In Norway, for example, 39% of the population say they don't believe in God compared to 37% who do. And so we can understand that when that persecution drops, when it's more socially acceptable, you see folks start to identify more with non-believer identities. And one footnote to add here, and I, I know we've talked about this before, the term non-believer is pretty unique to the United States, actually. It isn't widely used outside the U.S., and this is important because the freedom of religion or belief is protected under international law. You already mentioned Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which states that everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion, and this right includes freedom to change his religion or belief, and freedom either alone or in community with others and in public or private to manifest his religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship, and observance. Now, that all said, right, what we can learn from that is that freedom covers not just religious communities, but non-theist ones as well. And so I do say that I affirmatively, as an atheist humanist, spoiler alert, I identify as a humanist and an atheist, I do have beliefs that are protected by international law, and it's my right to express and exercise them. So while non-believer is a term widely used in the U.S., it, it isn't widely used elsewhere, and I do think that's important to share. Thank you for that. No, that is very important to clarify. And and um, we also know that the non-believer community is not monolithic, uh, as you alluded to, and includes several different categories of identities, including humanists, as you mentioned. What are the differences among those categories and their beliefs? And why is it important to recognize these differences? So, yeah, non-believer is an umbrella term that covers a wide number of terms that cover our community, Dwight, that you already mentioned a bunch of them, atheist, non-theist, agnostic, free thinker, humanist, and others. A few simplistic definitions. An atheist or non-theist is someone who simply doesn't believe in a God and affirmatively says so. An agnostic is someone who might not be sure if God exists or not, but regardless of the answer to that question, it doesn't change how they engage with the world. A free thinker is someone who comes to their understanding of the world using reason. And a humanist, which I identify as, is someone who ascribes to humanist values and a humanist worldview, meaning that in this very short life we have to live, it's our responsibility to make the world a better place, guided by reason and compassion. At the American Humanist Association, we like to define it by our slogan, good without a God. And all these words can be tied together to help someone explain their identity, right? Someone could be an atheist and a humanist, an agnostic and a free thinker. And layering on even further, there are religious humanists like Jewish humanists or Christian humanists who identify with our community. They might find meaning in their Jewish community 
or the Torah, but then they also ascribe to a humanist worldview that regardless of what happens, you know, in the beyond, they do have a human responsibility here and now to make the world a better place. And I'll also add that you mentioned secularists, and I'm really glad that you did, because I think we do a lot of work within our community to distinguish secularists from non-believers, from non-theists, because secularism is a political framing. It's a political worldview. It's very simply put the separation between religion and government. And we like to say that we do not have ownership of that phrase because, you know, the United States is a secular democracy. We have a very defined separation of religion and government that we hope that religious groups and non-religious groups, religious folks and non-religious folks can all come together to support and defend. Um, And so while some of the religious freedoms that we're going to talk about a little bit later, I'm sure, um, impact secularists and folks who believe in secularism and fight for secularism in their governments, it, we don't usually claim them as part of our community because it's a political phrase. It's a political you know, understanding definition of how governments should be organized, not so much of an identity issue of understanding our place in the world in the here and now. And, you know, to to speak to another piece of your question, it is so important to recognize these differences. Using Islam as an example that your listeners may be more familiar with, if we say that Iran and Pakistan both have majority Muslim populations and we don't dig any deeper, we fail to account for distinctions among Shia and Sunni Muslims. Or even deeper than that, we fail to account for distinctions between Sunni and Ahmadi Muslims. And when we recognize the differences in these communities, we're seeing people as they want to be seen. And we're seeing a fuller picture of how they make meaning in their lives. And then on the other hand, how they may face persecution depending on where and when they live in this world. And it's the same for non-theists. That's important first and foremost for accurate data collection, which USURF is very, very well attuned to because we then put data to use. And when we put data to use and we really define deep down kind of where these communities find their meaning and how they identify, we can better understand the demographics of a region and the requirements of protecting the rights of an atheist, let's say to express themselves openly, for example, might be different than what's required to protect the rights of a humanist who seeks to exercise their right to build humanist community. And so when we really dig deep and understand these differences, we can better support and protect the rights of those folks. Yeah, thank you. That's a very good analogy to look at it that way, because obviously within various faiths, you have a lot of diversity and and different uh, uh, groups and sects and denominations. So uh, uh, now that you've couched it in this way, it really gives us a a better understanding of what it means to be a non-believer and the the diversity within that. You know, Humanist International publishes each year a, a Freedom of Thought report that surveys how each country upholds the rights and equality for non-religious people. Can you share with us some of the key takeaways uh, from the most recent 2021 report? And are there any specific countries or regions where non-believers face particularly severe discrimination or persecution and violence? And and what are the issues, uh, you know, in some of those places? Yeah. So I I love Humanist International's Freedom of Thought report. It is, you know, I think where I found find so much of the evidence I need to do my work because it is the most detailed and expansive global report on the rights of treatment, rights and treatment of humanists and non-theists 
in every single country around the world. And what makes the report so detailed and so expansive and therefore so valuable is that it applies more than 70 different boundary conditions to each country. So what's a boundary condition for folks who might not you know, live and breathe this kind of work? Each boundary condition is a specific litmus test that measures the freedom and treatment of non-theists in a very particular way. For example, does the country have a blasphemy law? If so, how is blasphemy punished? Is there discrimination in social life? Does the government push a socially conservative, religiously or ideologically inspired agenda? Or on the other hand, a positive boundary condition, is the state secular? Does it have separation of religious and political authorities? And through each of these questions, and again, there's more than 70 of them, the report captures not only legal discrimination and legal treatment of non-theists, but more elusive criteria such as social pressures and religious influence. And the 2021 report found that humanists are discriminated against in 144 countries through a combination of state religion, laws derived from religious law, government figures openly marginalizing, harassing, or inciting violence against the non-religious, blasphemy and apostasy laws, discriminatory funding of religion, religious courts, religious schools, and more. And this can, you know, be pulled out even further through a few examples. The report found that 26 countries bar non-religious people from holding public office. 33 countries have a provision of mandatory religious instruction in state-funded schools without a secular humanist alternative. And I'll also add that this year's report, which is the 10th year of the report, includes two new boundary conditions that further get at those elusive criteria and specifically identify connections between the discrimination of non-theists, religious minorities, and discrimination against women and LGBTQ people. This report looked at the use of conscientious objection clauses resulting in the denial of lawful services to women and LGBTQ people, which was found in four countries. And that's someone, let's say, using their religion, who may be a nurse or a doctor, using their religion to deny health care to a transgender person, for example. And then the second new criteria looked at the dominant influence of religion in public life and how that undermines the right to equality and or non-discrimination, which was found in 24 countries. And, you know, you asked me if I could name a few countries that are particularly concerning. I think I'll just briefly speak to those with extreme punishments for blasphemy laws. Afghanistan, Iran, Nigeria, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Mauritania all have the death sentence for blasphemy laws. And so therefore are at the very top of the watch list that Humanists International puts together every year. And, you know, I cannot do the report justice for more information on specific countries and the findings. I really do encourage people to visit Humanists International's website and read the report for themselves. Thank you. That's very that's very helpful. And and you do mention the uh, use of blasphemy laws on the books in a number of countries, which obviously we report on extensively. And 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 we've we've found one issue uh, in addition to blasphemy or apostasy laws, obviously that infringe on the rights of vulnerable individuals and groups, including non-religious individuals and communities. And for example, you know, and you mentioned Nigeria, uh, Mubarak Bala, self-identified atheist from Nigeria, is one of Yusuf's religious prisoners of conscience. And he's been in prison since 2020 in connection 
to allegedly blasphemous uh, Facebook posts. Why are non-believers at particular risk uh, because of these laws? You you touched on that. And can you tell us any any more updates about uh, Mr. Bala's case in particular? Yeah. So to your first question, as you know, blasphemy law basically restricts someone's ability to insult or um, criticize religion or God. Right. Blasphemy is just defined as an insult to religion or God. So for many people. And under these laws, me simply saying that I'm an atheist is considered an insult or criticism of God. And this goes back to your first question about why it's hard to simply count non-theists around the world, because the simple act of identifying oneself as an atheist can break blasphemy laws with incredibly serious consequences, ranging from torture to life sentences in prison to even death. And as you mentioned, the very existence of these laws restricts my right to freely express my religion or belief. Now, Mubarak Bala is the president of the Humanist Association of Nigeria, and his case has been rife with irregularities. He's been he was held without charge for more than 460 days for causing a public disturbance in connection with five Facebook posts he's alleged to have made, like you said, in April 2020. And since his arrest, Bala was routinely denied access to medical care and to his legal team. And Kano state authorities even failed to comply with a ruling in the high court that determined that Bala should be released on bail. And today, I'm incredibly sad to say he was sentenced to 24 years in prison. Now, the global humanist community strongly condemns the outrageous decision of the court to convict Bala of 18 counts of causing a public disturbance under sections 210 and 114 of the Kano State Penal Code. And we continue to call on the Nigerian government to release him immediately and unconditionally and ensure his safety upon his release. Um, This is completely brand new information as of this morning. And so we're obviously tracking developments closely. And I'll certainly let you know, as hopefully his defense regroups and continues to take on his case. Gosh, thank you for giving that update. That is extremely disturbing to hear that development uh, which obviously we've been tracking closely as well but uh we'll have to we'll have to follow up on that certainly this is uh very concerning and you mentioned earlier about the, the laws and how that impacts it reminded me of in Saudi Arabia when they passed the law on terrorism years ago that in, in, in one of the offenses there uh is simply atheistic thought uh, as something that's uh uh, you know, uh, in, in some countries that are applying, um, you know, Sharia, uh, like they do in Saudi, that that by definition, uh, to not believe in God uh, in, in certain interpretations mind uh, can lead to these kinds of uh, egregious laws. Now, my, my final question, uh, Rachel, American Humanists has led a civil society coalition that supported the passage of a congressional resolution in 2020 calling uh, for the global repeal of blasphemy, heresy, and apostasy laws. Can you tell us more about this resolution and its significance? And, and do you expect there'll be efforts to pass similar resolutions in the future? And if there's anything else that you can think of that the U.S. government could do to combat these uh, prom- problematic laws that affect a range of uh, individuals and promote greater protections of non-religious communities, that would be very helpful. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, On background, in the 116th Congress, 
Like you said, I led a large coalition of secular, non-theist, and religious organizations in support of a resolution calling for the global repeal of blasphemy, heresy, and apostasy laws. And what I want to underscore there is, you know, the American Humanist Association did not and could not accomplish that alone. Our religious partners were incredibly important to getting both of those resolutions across the finish line. And I want to thank them all for just the immense continued partnership on this issue. Now, the resolution was led by Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland in the House and Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma in the Senate. And it essentially calls on the president and the State Department to do three things. First, it calls on them to make the repeal of these laws a priority in their bilateral relationships between the U.S. and countries that have such laws. Second, it calls on them to designate countries that enforce such laws as countries of particular concern for religious freedom, which triggers penalties and sanctions and is a really important diplomatic tool that we have. And I think to your other question about what we could be doing more of, I think we need to use the CPC list more and really follow through on the penalties that are tied to being added to that list. The third thing that the resolution calls for is it calls on the administration to oppose efforts by the United Nations to implement an international anti-blasphemy norm, which has been tried over the years. The resolution also calls on the governments of countries that enforce such laws to amend or repeal them and to release anyone imprisoned pursuant to them. And this is particularly important as so much of our diplomatic work to repeal these laws requires, very simply put, naming and shaming. The resolution specifically calls out Bangladesh's treatment of secular bloggers. It calls out Pakistan, Russia, China, and North Korea for being bad actors. And it also calls out some of the positives. The resolution cites progress in Greece, Ireland, and Canada, which have repealed their laws entirely or in the process of doing so. And the resolution was adopted by both the House and the Senate at the end of the 116th Congress and is a very important first step in a much larger strategy to change these laws around the world. For example, we've shifted focus a little bit to federal appropriations bills to tie funding to the U.S.'s strategy and build on both those efforts um, <clears throat> to basically provide countries with a carrot for repealing their blasphemy laws. And the fiscal year 21 and 2022 appropriations bills had language encouraging the State Department to provide resources for countries like trainings and cultural competency trainings for countries that repeal their laws or at least begin a formal process of doing so. And, you know, about where we could go this year with the resolution, there is certainly an effort to get Congress to build on that success again this year. And in particular, you know, something that we don't have time to talk about today, we've seen countries shift blasphemy laws to online spaces, like in the case of Mubarak Bala, to police the expression of people online and use platforms like social media to accuse people of blasphemy. But as we know, social media is incredibly important for religious minorities to build community and express themselves. So that's one issue, for example, that we hope to spotlight in the blasphemy resolutions this year.
That's very helpful, and thank you. We, and we do know that there are there have been from some, some of our work on blasphemy in a, in a fairly major report a couple of years ago that you know, there are some countries that, with the right kinds of encouragement, do repeal their laws. Uh, there's a lot of countries that had them on the books uh, that simply weren't using them, and and but need uh, need some nudging and so on. But thank you for unpacking that. Uh, unfortunately, we'll have to leave it right here. I want to thank uh, Rachel Deitch from the American Humanist Association for sharing her insights and expertise today. You can find USERF's work on non-religious communities on our website, particularly the report last year on the plight of non-believers in Africa. As always, thanks for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another Usurf Spotlight.